Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last eight years, I've done more than 350 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been working with Boris Effects products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, we talk to the editors of Hulu's The Bear. It's got some really innovative editing, and when I queried Art of the Cut fans about shows they really wanted to hear more about, The Bear was high on the list. The editor of the pilot episode, and half of the others in the series, is Joanna Noggle. In addition to her work on The Bear, Joanna has also worked on TV series including Human Resources, Turning the Tables with Robin Roberts, Rami, and Some Good News. Adam Epstein's other work includes more than a decade at Saturday Night Live, plus TV series including Mr. Mayor, That Damn Michael Che, and Some Good News. Before we hop into our discussion with them, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop with end-to-end encryption, native support for Mac OS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free, no limits, 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen. And for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, check out all their tools, including Sapphire and Mocha Pro, at borisfx.com AOTC. Also, if you want to read this interview with great visual support, go to borisfx.com AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now to our discussion with Joanna Nagel and Adam Epstein. So I watched the first five episodes last night in a binge that I just loved it. What a great and very interesting show. If you could each tell me how you kind of got involved with this series. Ladies first, Joanna. I cut the pilot last summer and it all goes back to Josh Sr., the guy who started Senior Post. I started working with him in like 2012 when he was just opening up this post house called Senior Post in Dumbo and we were renting office space. I was basically like his first editor he hired and now cut to 10 years later. I'm a co-owner of Senior Post. He's executive producing projects. So this was like the first TV show he was able to executive produce. And we had worked together with Chris Storer on Rami previously and a couple of other comedy specials like Inside and Rathaniel. So the stars aligned. Chris was making the show. He knew he wanted to work with us. So he brought Josh on as an EP and me on as the editor of the pilot. And then it was greenlit, I think, towards the end of last year. Then we were like, well, who's our absolute favorite editor we want to add to the team? And it was Adam Epstein. So that timed out perfectly that he could join. That's very kind, but very uh, hyperbolic, I'd say. (laughs) I'm very lucky to have worked with everyone at Senior Post before. Everything went really well and really smoothly. This show is a really good example of, especially when like timelines are tight and things are intense, if you genuinely enjoy and have a really comfortable rapport with the people you're working with, it makes things so much easier to experiment and not be too precious about things and not be like afraid to talk through stuff. And I think that really lent itself here. What Joe said was the pilot got picked up. I'd worked with them on a couple of things that's in your post before. Um, we did the sack launch bunch with John Mulaney and A24. I did a comedy special that Chris Storer had directed. Just very lucky that they reached out and it all timed out. This is a great process all in all. Fantastic. The show has a very unique editing style, especially that pilot. I just loved it. This, I guess, is a question more for Joanna. What were your marching orders on that? What did the director showrunner tell you when you started cutting that? Because I would not cut something like that unless somebody told me that is what they wanted. 
It's so funny in preparation of this, I looked back at the first cut I submitted to Chris and Josh and it was almost 39 minutes long. It's so funny thinking back on that. And now it's like 28, I think. I think we cut out like a full 10 minutes. We spent so much time, especially entering into the episode because when I look back, I forgot that each of the scenes at the beginning were scripted and supposed to play out in their entirety instead of this crazy montage. So I sent it to Chris and Josh and I was like, you know, this is a rough cut. It's very long and everything's in there right now. And he was just like, I feel like we need to just be thrown into the world as immediately as possible. So we basically tried to condense the first 10 minutes, which were all these back-to-back scenes into a three-minute montage. And I would do that and be like, okay, I got it down to like four minutes. What do you think? And he's like, all right, let's get it down to three and a half. And then we get to three and a half. He's like, I think we can do three. At first, we actually had some Chicago archival shots in that montage. And then we couldn't clear some of them. And it also just seemed like it was a little bit too much going on. So then we started putting in not home videos, but family photos of the Berzato family and actual photos of Jeremy as a kid. That's when it went to like the next level for me. I just loved making it more about Carmi, introducing us to this world. And then once you're in the kitchen, he was like, you should make people feel like they want to turn it off. It should be overwhelming. (laughs) People need to pause it and catch their breath. And I was like, this is crazy. I've never edited something that's so like in your face and fast. But the effect was like, you feel like you're right next to Richie screaming over you to Carmi and Sydney. So I think it was really just about bringing the audience into the experience of being like, here's what we're throwing you into. We're not even going to explain that much, but you're going to get the vibe. And hopefully you don't have a heart attack and want to watch season two. It was kind of the <laughs> overall feelings. But we played so much with music too. There's actually scenes where there's two different tracks playing and one will become louder when Carmi's talking and louder when Richie's talking. And it's just supposed to create this feeling of like, who's in charge? This is a power struggle. This is just like the most stressful environment you could imagine. So that hopefully the rest of the season until episode seven, things progressively Mm -hmm. get better and better as they're starting to figure out their jive. But it should start from a place of like, this is hell for Carmi and just going from there. And Adam, I'm assuming that you watched that pilot before you came on or as you came on. Yeah, I remember watching it the first time and then talking with Josh and being like, holy shit, is the whole show going to be like this? Because at the time I hadn't read the rest of the scripts yet. And I think it's incredibly cool, but I don't know if I could watch a whole season at that speed. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's been really fascinating to see like as the season developed and as I think a lot of it too, like we were figuring out like what is the progression of the overall macro feel of the season because that's what I didn't realize at first was as opposed to like a scene to scene thing. It's really an episode to episode as far as the way that the pacing and even stuff like the color timing and the background ambiences and sound effects evolve over the course of the season in a very deliberate way that I didn't really anticipate at first. They're being very smart and deliberate in the sense of it's really mirroring the journey of what's going on in the kitchen or what's going on internally with Carmen. But yeah, when I first saw that pilot, I was like, oh my God, this is nuts. <laughs> this is nuts. They were very smart about the way they thought out the overall arc from a big picture level. Yeah. I interviewed the winning. Have you guys seen Winning Time? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Winning Time people, of course, they're working from a pilot cut by Hank Corwin. Hank. Yeah. Most of the editors are like, uh, wait a minute, I have to replicate this. <laughs> like, how, how do I learn to cut like this, basically? So I could definitely see that that would be a challenge. And as you say, the rest of the episodes aren't like the first episode or even the first five minutes of the first episode. I absolutely loved the editing. I thought it was very creative and interesting. And it's not that speed as we're kind of talking about this fire hose speed that started on, but there's like a 20 second shot of a guy scrubbing a spotted dirt off of the floor, you know? So it definitely has moments of release or moments for you to catch your breath. Well, that's one of the things that I found funny, not funny, but interesting when people reading anything about how they describe the show, they always focus initially on like, it's so intense. It's so fast. It's like the fastest show. Part of it is, and then part of it compared to other TV is very deliberate and very slow. And it's that balance between, usually it's like in the kitchen 
madness. And then they literally go outside or they go somewhere else, or it's a person alone and you get that kind of release valve. And usually the release valve is a four minute shot. And you haven't seen the last episode yet, but Jeremy Allen White has a seven minute monologue straight to camera. You have these moments that are playing considerably slower and more drawn out that feel much more like you're watching theater a lot of times than a very manufactured piece of TV, which I thought was great. Kind of like a Pixie song with loud, 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 quiet, and then loud, 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 and then breath, (laughs) which is kind of a cool rhythm to find. Yeah. Thoughts on that, Joanna, and finding those moments to release the tension of the, especially the kitchen? Yeah, definitely. It just felt exactly like you're saying, a relief as I was cutting too, to be like, okay, like now, <laughs> now this is a moment to let shots linger because for so long it was just like, how can we make this as fast paced as possible? How do we just create this beast army is trying to tame? And one of the hardest scenes for me to cut was the opening of episode two when they're in the fancy kitchen. I think it's scripted as Empire. Oh, yeah. And it was interesting because it was finding the in-between of that, where it should feel fast-paced like a kitchen, but it also should feel so different from the vibe at the beef of like everyone is a well-oiled machine. It should be like a symphony, basically. So that was one of those moments that was like, oh, it should feel so different, but still fast-paced. And I remember really being like, how do we distinguish that? This is another way to run a kitchen that could not be more opposite from where we're going. I remember we cut from that scene to then... Carmi at the beef, yelling at the top of his lungs. And then soon after that is that really long scrubbing shot. It was cool to juxtapose these two kind of different but fast-paced work environments and then have this really long moment of like, this is a man who's holding it together by a thread and he just wants to like clean the floor in this one moment. Can he clean it up? And just really sitting with him and building this empathy early on for this guy who clearly is very damaged and troubled. That transition out to the hands call, hands, hands, hands is like one of my favorite turns in the whole series. From the gleaming white to just this, scuzzy kind of green yellow uh, awesome so good and in color i remember chris was like it should feel like blown out this like fancy restaurant is angelic so bright it's blinding and then you get exactly like adam was saying nothing's white in the beef everything is like dirty or oily except for maybe carmy shirt but still <laughs> that contrast should be very apparent in all aspects of it editing color sound everything so it's fun later on there's the baking stuff at the beef feels a little bit there's some whiteness in there but yeah i get it so much of that color that you get as far as like the elevated dishes in there the funny thing is it's photos of other places that are there as opposed to like the actual place itself which i always thought was funny it's a bummer you haven't seen seven or eight yet but there's a sequence in eight a panic attack that Joanna cut that is one of like my favorite things ever because you normally think of panic attacks as madness, madness, which it is, but the other side of it uses basically just breathing and stills of incredibly high and beautiful fine dining is almost like a calm down basically. And the way that she balanced the images and the breath and like feeling someone ramp themselves down, I thought was just really incredible. It's funny because like when you're working on it, you're not really watching it as a viewer. So after it's been out, it was nice to have a little break and then just go back and watch everything through and be like, oh man, there's some parts here that are so good. How were you guys able to collaborate? You were kind of talking about, Adam, how you were in that room. Were you guys regularly doing something together or were you almost always working apart and just seeing maybe a finished piece from the other editor? Yeah, we really stuck to our own episodes for the most part, I'd say. But I feel like there were moments where we'd be like, can you just watch the scene and tell me what you think? Is this working or not working? I remember there's this one scene specifically that was supposed to be an episode two, the plum scene. I feel like you and I handed that back and forth so many times, Adam, because we're trying yeah. to find the right episode for it. But honestly, it was just like, cutting the pilot by myself I feel like I just wanted someone at times to be like is this working like another opinion of somebody who knows how to manipulate a sequence in order to achieve a desired effect so I feel like there were moments where I'd be like can you just watch the scene and let me know what you think and how do you feel about this music cue I feel like we were just each other's first sounding boards and it was so fun when I had some downtime to be like oh I'm gonna see where episode five is at now or something I don't know, I was just always like, oh, this is getting better and better and seeing the things that Adam did in five, like with the photos of Sydney with the seafood. That's five, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Parking, parking lot stuff. 
I love like the flashes to like the crawfish and shrimp and seeing a little bit into her world. And I feel like that influenced how we then handled the panic attack in 108. There was also a lot of watching what each other is doing with the episode, seeing how the characters are growing and then bringing that into some of the later episodes. I feel like the way that Adam was using fades in the kitchen a lot of times would inspire me to be like, oh, why don't I try a fade here? Because a lot of times that wouldn't be my first instinct. I know. I'll cheat. (laughs) Some great fades in episode three that I was like, oh, right, this is a tool in our like arsenal. So I feel like we were creating this language and like, even if we weren't always talking about it, just watching each other's cuts, it was like, oh, that's a cool way to make the kitchen feel this way or that way, or a way to like linger on the characters more. It was really helpful to throw what I would normally do is like we throw a little, usually no more than two or three minutes exported clips up on Slack and just be like, hey, check this out. I'm curious about the, either the music under here or is it better with no music? We were on Slack a lot talking back and forth. For me, the main bummer about working from home is not having an in-person gripe partner to an extent, which I think in post-production is very important, not in like a negative. As an editor. editor, Not in like a negative way, but just someone who really understands it to that extent. And oftentimes, even if you're wrong, just to be able to like, "Ah, I just got to get this off my chest about something. So that would happen in private chats over Slack, which was really nice to be able to do that, which again speaks to the benefits and the luck of working with people that you are friends with and like to work with. And for me too, like what Joe was saying too, about looking at what the other person is doing and not necessarily even talking about it, but just kind of like discovering sort of moments or ways that they went about that, which would then inform what you were doing and then made everything feel more cohesive in general. I I was doing that a lot on her cuts. Music is so important in the show, but there are moments where you're using the song. It's not like a music video style, but there are moments where you're doing like little tricks to do massive time jumps within the context of the music that would then make things feel a little more special than just straight montage. And Joe did that a bunch. There's one moment. It's such a small moment, but it's like one of my favorite parts in the whole show. It's in two. Which one's the Breeders track? I think it's the end of two. He finds the letter, commercial break, and then the back end, right? So there's one cut that's using this Breeders track. In the beginning of the song, there's like a brief moment where it drops out for a second. And so on one side of the dropout, you see Carm starting a dish or getting something ready. And then in that brief moment of the pause in the track, she put in this super extreme close-up of a timer setting. So sound effect of the timer, sound effect of a burner going on, and then cuts right back to Carmen basically in the same position. And you've done like a half hour jump. Now there's full chickens there and other things. So it had this like cool music video vibe to it without it being a full music video set to the track. That's a little thing that I saw. I'm like, okay, this is a cool way to go about using the music thematically. That was long-winded, but... No, uh, that's <laughs> really interesting, though. It's a great example, and I remember that cut. That's very interesting. Joanna, any thoughts on that and building that or working on that specific piece? I think that was something that even Chris Storr encouraged me to try because he and Josh Senior were so involved with choosing a lot of the tracks, too. Like, literally, on the pilot, he sent me a playlist of... I don't know, like 40 songs and was like, this is the world of the bear. Feel free to pull from these tracks as a starting point. Similarly to how the show ended up all over the place. A ton of Wilco, but also rap and also Dan Morrison, I think. Yeah, Van Morrison, Dad Rock, all these different genres, movie score, soundtracks. So it was like, this is just the starting point. So I was like, oh, this is so all over the place, but love that we could not just stick to a certain genre. So anyway, I feel like he was really in tune to the songs because he had been listening to this playlist and it was a lot of his favorite music that ended up in there. And so he was like, oh, there's this dropout here. Let's just build up the sound. And from early on, we really spent a lot of time doing our temp sound design too, just because, again, it was so helpful for inhabiting the world and just for a show that's so specifically about pacing, the moments that feel loud should feel really loud and the moments that are quiet should feel really quiet. Kudos to Josh DePew and Megan Mancini too for doing a lot of temp sound work where I was like, let's just add more sound for the kitchen. We had so many ambient tracks and phones ringing, car horns outside. The mixture of that and the music just created the rhythm of the kitchen and everybody operating on that same frequency and pace. Did the two of you have a little play box, a sandbox of audio? Like I can see, hey, even though it's not production sound, I need a burner turning on. I need a plate being scraped. I need a mixer turning on. Was there any of that stuff that you guys got? Tons and tons and tons of it. Oh, nice. So That's much awesome. drowning, drowning in all the different oven sounds. <laughs> yeah, it's oven indeed, sounds. 
Yeah, the sound effects bins at the end of it are pretty substantial, which would be nice for second season jumping off point. Although who knows, the kitchen might be very mellow by then and uh, it'll just be some running water in the back and some slow chops <laughs> or something. We also had the most epic B-roll project because they like did that full beef process. I don't know five times which you say so many times so we had basically we're using a shared project system so if you're in the b-roll project we had food beauty shots and kitchen beauty shots messy kitchen front of house messy there was just so much b-roll that they collected and that's not even the exteriors we had so much chicago b-roll a lot of chicago Chicago b-roll Anyway, that was just such a great resource because I remember Chris was talking about how fire should be like a motif throughout. So we had so many different angles and focal lengths on fire turning on or things like that. I feel like we made use of that throughout the season and could easily just be like, we haven't seen the food in a while. Let's have a little cooking montage. And that wasn't like, we'll need reshoots. It was like, no, we have about eight hours. <laughs> yeah. It was cool to be able to use montage and especially the way that they shot so many beautiful close-ups that really allowed you to get much more experimental with it and that ended up becoming what normally would be an establishing shot so it's very rare if ever that we did before a scene all right here's exterior establishing of the restaurant or establishing of she's they're going to cicero's house there was never like okay we're at the house and now it's here it's just like boom you're in it it was great to have that resource to be able to design different kind of transitions that weren't the most predictable here's our bridge to the next scene type of thing yeah absolutely and i definitely felt as somebody who's lived in chicago since 1985 this feels like chicago definitely feels like chicago there's a lot of handheld camera in this series when the two of you are watching through dailies trying to decide on things how much is the performance of the camera part of your decision making process as opposed to the performance of the actor for me it varies so much from scene to scene This isn't like a a rule that I do every time, but especially on the scenes where like in episode three, after the Al-Anon meeting with Molly Ringwald, and then you're back in the kitchen and it's mayhem, or you're back in front of house during like the service and everyone's just screaming at each other and the dialogue tracks, everyone's overlapping each other. And there's not like, here's the start of the line. Here's that. It's really on top of itself. What I would do a lot of times is really try to get the audio rhythm sounding right first so i could basically watch it without even looking at it and make sure that even though it's on top of everything you can kind of hear where everyone's coming through the right lines are being punctuated and then go back and do a bass visual on top of that and then go back and really do a okay here was a deliberate move where they were really obviously trying to find marcus on this line for example so it's kind of like a three-step process on that but then there are some scenes where You can obviously see, oh, this was by design, the way they were panning from one line to the next line or more planned out in that sense. So for me, it was very contextual depending on the scene. Yeah, I'd say that I would lean more towards actor performance than camera performance in this show, because I think we also could get away with a lot more shaky camera or like if things were finding their focus I think that fit into this world and it wouldn't fit in every show but especially the scenes where everyone is in the kitchen and talking over each other those were some of my favorite scenes to cut just because there's so much going on and also if there ever was a weird camera bump it would just be like oh great cut to a reaction yeah. shot of sweeps there's so much going on and they did a great job covering that and making you feel like you were in the room that it did seem like it was pretty easy to cover over those things just because there were things to look at that were equally compelling. It didn't feel like a band-aid. It was like, oh yeah, let's check in with this person because there's eight people in the room. I think a little bit of the jitter or finding focus added to a lot of the scenes and the chaos of them. But obviously there were some shots, I mean, episode seven, no spoilers, was a huge camera achievement. So that was about basically choosing the right track and finding some little cut points. But overall, that was the camera's time to shine, I guess. Yes, Steve, (laughs) I'm very curious to hear your thoughts after you see episode seven. It's pretty special just from a filmmaking perspective. Great. All right. I'll check that out. And I was thinking of another one of those quieter moments on the beach, North Avenue Beach, and just sitting there, just looking at his face, basically with beautiful bulk of lights and stuff at dawn i'm assuming yeah there are lovely moments of pause and reflection and that stuff happens as well for sure 
when we started that on episode three and i remember like when i started in that josh senior was like okay so this one is going to be more of a sofia coppola episode so if you think it's too long nope just linger let it be <laughs> he's a very good actor let's just stare at him being a very good, very handsome, troubled young man. And yeah, it definitely worked. And then that episode, actually, the end where he then goes back to the beach to kind of mirror the beginning, it wasn't scripted that way. It had a different ending. And we're trying to figure out, well, how do we wrap this up? And that's just a different take from the same setup, same day, mm -hmm. same outfit, same everything. <laughs> but put a good REM song under it. You're like, oh, this is great. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask, I, I didn't think that that was scripted as bookended, but I just love how that mirrors. And I feel like episode three is kind of when it's like, okay, we're really going to get into Carmi's mind a little more. And he goes to Al-Anon for the first time, and it just seems like he's inching closer to letting us in a little more. And I feel like the beach is the moment where I'm like, oh yeah, we're really getting to know this guy. So I thought that was just so beautifully done. I noticed, and this is probably more on episodes one and two than later, but claustrophobic shot sizes, especially the pilot, that's just good filmmaking, right? Of making you feel like you're stuck in this tight kitchen, or is it just because you're in a tight kitchen and there's no way to go wider? <laughs> <laughs> probably a little bit of both. It was a little bit of art imitates reality, imitates art situation. But a fun fact is that they shot the pilot in an actual kitchen, I think it's called Mr. Beef. Mr. Beef, yeah. And then they rebuilt the kitchen for the actual series, but shot it on a studio. And so I had to keep reminding myself, all oh, right, they're not an actual kitchen because they just did such a good job. But anyway, I think they intentionally were like, we've now boxed ourselves into this tight kitchen space just from the nature of the show. But I think the extreme close-ups of the food or the faces really did lend itself to these feelings of intensity between these characters and the moments then where you see a wide of the kitchen, you really chose to use those at very specific moments because everything just felt so much more personal when you're seeing two people yell at each other in close-ups rather than it playing out in the wide. I feel like I really didn't use many wides of everybody in the kitchen. Maybe in six when they're starting to get their act together, I feel like there's a nice- But even that was like- A move-in shot. In, in six, Towards the end, you sort of start to see like, okay, when things start to really click in and uh, the system's working and everyone's buying in, just a really nice tracking shot around. But even that was really going from the focus of a plate of food up to the hand, up to the face, panning across, landing somewhere else and really deliberate and so close up. The thing I liked about the way that they would frame so much stuff was it kept you just so isolated from anything else going on. Someone said to me, basically, are there ever customers there? And the answer might be like, sure, but they're not really thinking about that to an extent. They're thinking about what is going on in the moment, in this second, that I have to get something done right now. And so the myopia and just not being able to see outside what's right in front of your face was a really powerful device. Talk to me about Chris Storer and the creative notes that he gives you guys, the collaboration that you have and what you're giving him, what he's giving you back. Chris is like the most enthusiastic creator of a show I've ever worked on. He was just endlessly positive. We'd send him a cut and be like, okay, watch it when you get a chance. And literally 28 minutes after he'd be like, I just watched the cut. It looks so dope. Like here's some thoughts and like I'll follow up more. His energy is infectious because he clearly loves the show, loved the process of putting this on screen. And his sister is a chef in real life. He's from Chicago. So I think it was a very personal story to him. So I think he understood the language of the restaurant really well. And so that was helpful to me in the pilot. If he'd be like, oh, we should be moving faster through this. This is just like another day for them or like more specifics like that. I think he inhabited the world really well. But I think he was also pretty hands-off in terms of editing in a way that was really exciting as an editor. Instead of giving even really specific time code notes would be like, this scene should feel like, Carmi should feel like the world was closing in and he's just thinking of Michael and how he's abandoned in like the restaurant. That would be a cool thing for me to process to say, oh, what are the editing things that we can do to achieve that and send it back to him? He's like, this is great. This part should be faster or slower or the music should kick in here. So I feel like he was very specific about music and where that should be coming in and out. And in terms of the actual putting together the bones of the scene, he left a lot of that up to us, which was very exciting as an editor, I'd have to say. Do you agree, Adam? Oh my God. It was so refreshing and such a blessing to be able to work with someone who is 
confident enough in their own vision as far as what it should eventually be, but then also trusting enough in the people that they're working with to be more descriptive versus prescriptive in the way that they would give notes. So I don't think there was really ever notes where it's like at 115.27, Carm's look to the left there feels a little off. It was never stuff like that ever. It was much more like Joe was saying, like you should feel the weight more. And so maybe we linger a little longer, or maybe we start to hear a track that starts to rise up underneath. Usually much more about feeling and vibe than really specific dialed in notes, which was just great. It gave you freedom to experiment, which then led to sometimes happy accidents that would end up being more interesting than something you would have thought of if it was like, okay, we're going to go from this shot to this shot, to this shot, to this shot. And then we're out. It was great. And it let it simultaneously feel looser than being incredibly A to B to C, but then also conversely tighter in the way that the whole thing ended up being paced out. I've had people I've seen, they're talking about how, oh, this is so cool to have these 30 minute dramas where it's tight, but it's also so much story that's packed into it at the same time. But I don't really think it was truly like that by design until we kind of really started getting into it and figured out as far as what's going to be the eventual length for these things. So much of that was when Chris would say, let's get through this. And then that scene would end up shrinking 60%, which would then take the episode down five minutes overall. And you're like, oh, this is like a tight 30 minute episode that has an hour's worth of stuff in it. Now, I think the process of getting the cuts from 35 minutes to like 29 minutes, I was like, this is impossible. We'll never get six minutes out of here. But most of them we got down to like just around 30 minutes. I think that was a testament too to Chris killing his darlings a little bit, or just being like, let's trust that the audience will get this. Sometimes we don't need the dialogue to explain it so on the nose because we're achieving the feelings we want to feel. So I think there was a lot of trust also, like Adam was saying, which was all you could hope for as an editor. (laughs) So lucky. You mentioned the overlapping dialogue. I think that was in episode three that I noticed it the most. Can you talk about, was it recorded that way? And then you had to deal with how do I get in and out of the best performances when everybody's talking over each other? Or were those constructed overlaps? Much more the former because it was scripted. Everyone you know, obviously knew what they were going to be saying, but I feel like it wouldn't have felt as natural as far as what does it feel like when six people are yelling at each other simultaneously? You sometimes do lose words and you sometimes do have stuff blended in on top of itself. And what I would do with that when it came to performance, what I did a lot of is usually cutting mid word on things to really be able to blend. So if the word is outside, I would cut on the t in outside for one side of it, as opposed to, you know, end of a sentence, end of a word to really be able to blend one take to another. So a lot of times, at least for me, on like the outgoing shot within a scene, you would already be on the dialogue for the thing that you're then cutting to in the next take. And maybe sync would be like mm, a frame or two off on that side, but with the speed and the noise, it doesn't make a difference. And the propulsion, if everything was working smoothly, would just carry you through anyways. I found that really helpful. Yeah. I edit similarly with the overlaps. Joanna, any thought? Did you have those scenes too? Definitely. And even from the first footage that came in for the pilot, I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to cut in between all of these words? And it's like, oh no, I think a lot of times we're just finding the take that felt most appropriately paced. And I would use that as the backbone a lot of times and then cut in as needed. But I think on set, they were filming with the pace of the edit in mind. It wasn't like that was something we had to fabricate afterwards. And I think also Chris was like, if we miss some of the like background lines, there's jokes stacked in there or side throwaway comments. And as long as we're getting a story, if somebody rewatches it, maybe they will hear that Marcus made this joke in the background in this scene. But he was like, it should feel again, just like natural, like you're in there and maybe you caught what someone said, or maybe you didn't, but it should just feel like the room is full of these different voices and this family, this organism that just (laughs) everyone's playing their part and wisecracking a little bit and adding to the overall feeling of being in that place. Is there any score at all or is everything a needle drop? There's a little bit of score. One score we kept using was this great track that they wrote for the opening of their nightmare scene. It was very foreboding, just like strings that kind of builds. And I found myself using that over and over again. And then the composer tweaked it a little bit. 
I feel like there was a couple other moments of score in the background if there was music. It's supposed to be playing on the radio. Sometimes I feel like we wrote things to be there. Not a lot of score. I used two APM tracks on my episodes. And then after seeing the songs that we were able to use, I'm like, oh, why did I do that? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, the vast majority was either like diegetic, smaller songs, or pretty needle drop specific. Being able to work with good music is fun. And then also those songs almost became a score to an extent when you're playing them out as long as we did a lot of times, like at the end of five Impossible Germany, the Wilco song. And that plays in its entirety, basically, over a very long scene between Carmi and Sid, and then Marcus with a scene by himself, totally quiet, and then Sid going home, and then Chicago montage. So it becomes reverse scoring to an extent. There's the way that I would think about it. I tried a bunch of different songs in that earlier. And then at some point, Chris and Josh were like, let's use this REM song. This is going to be the end song. Awesome. But then I started thinking about like, okay, within this song, I want the guitar solo, the really the height of the guitar solo is going to be the cut to black. So then you sort of start working backwards. You know, I want this, I want ideally the Sid Carmi scene ends up right here when it gets into the bridge, because that matches nicely with Marcus. It was the reverse scoring of making it fit within the sort of the beats of the song without it feeling forced into those, just like everything would connect naturally to where the music was moving, which is a really fun and lucky to be able to have a great piece of music to do that too. Did you have to worry about the commercial breaks? Was that stuff scripted or did it just fall where it fell? We basically decided very late where the ad breaks would be. And I think Josh and Megan helped us out a lot there with where to put them and Andrew Rowley, our co-supervisor. We just cut as if it was one long thing and worried about it later. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple moments in the final because we were basically both pretty much off it once the commercial breaks were added. It's nothing that really affects anything, but there are a few moments where in six... There's a moment where like you'll, where Richie's very sad and then it goes into the next day. In the full cut, the song that starts the next day starts to slowly come in under him at night. But in the commercial version, there's nothing underneath the out and then it just comes in hard on the commercial end. Yeah, these are things that keep you up at night. After. <laughs> uh, I know, like, oh, it's not right. <laughs> I tell you, right. It's, it's the editor. You want to be there through those final decisions, right? When you see them. In some other way, I ask about going to the mix a lot of times, like what's the value to the production of having the editor at the mix? And a lot of times it's things like that. If I've got to drop the music out, we got to put something else in. Or if the music's going to start, like how can I make it softer? Those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, you know, everything now is remote, but we were all on all the mixes and I usually get pretty detailed notes on the frame postings because that is one of those things, even in the context of a creator and a showrunner, the editor knows, okay, in that scene, there should be a little more reverb on that random sound effect that in the end doesn't necessarily change that much, but like, you know, it's there and I know that track and you have the history to be like, no, I put that on track 12. Just to have that kind of direct dialogue with the mixer and the sound designers is really beneficial. What were some of the ways that you guys collaborated technically? I heard you say frame, is that frame IO or something else? Yeah, for postings and, and notes. Yeah, there was frame for internal cuts. And then I forget, I think they maybe used picks. Picks, for, right. For picks, yeah, yeah. picks and frame together. That's an interesting combination. And then, Joanna, you mentioned kind of watching one of Adam's cuts. Were you on some shared mm -hmm. Nexus system through the internet? Or how were you doing that? We used a program called LucidLink, which was basically like our cloud server. And for the most part, I would say we had a little bit of gearing up to it. And depending on the internet speed, if the internet was cooperating, it worked great. But yeah, for the most part, it was really important to have that with all of us working remotely. Because I remember in the early pandemic, when we were all transitioning to working home and I was on another show, it was like, okay, everybody downloaded the sound effect file and put it on your local hard drive. And make sure that the naming convention is the same so it relinks and it was just brutal you spent half the day just mirroring drives the fact that we could just download a song and it was up there or like adam said export two minutes of a scene and be like here's the file path check it out when you have a moment or throwing it up on slack it would have been impossible to make the deadline yeah. without it yeah yeah it was so helpful especially in the instances where 
one of us would be very deep on an episode and then we'd get a note or an idea. Hey, it would be great to have a glimpse of this stuff that's from Joanna's episode or vice versa. We're using Premiere with productions basically, which is very similar to traditional Avid shared media, lock bin access, all that fun stuff. And then within the Premiere productions, there's your main production folder that has everything and has all the bin permissions and the assignments that filter out to everyone who's in the production. But I could just drop a line to Joanna's assistant and be like, hey, could I just get a string out of all the Joel McHale moments just because I need 10 frames of him looking terrifying, basically. <laughs> and to have everything there at all times, especially with B-roll, especially with how much B-roll we had, and then also to be able to see what other people were using to avoid redundancy. Yeah, it would have been so much more cumbersome if we had to do it a local storage way. Interesting. To continue geeking out about this stuff before getting back to the craft a little bit, how was all this working? Were you in Premiere on your local machine with media that was in the cloud? And then yes. how were you accessing the Premiere production itself? That must have been on the cloud as well. Yes. That's a nice thing. I mean, I feel like now going into almost like year three of remote solutions, I feel like I've done 15 different variations of remote workflow, even if all media is in the cloud. The show I did before The Bear, we were using Jump Desktop. So you're using one computer to control another computer. Were there any rules laid down about the style of editing or trying to collaborate between editors? Or let's say somebody new comes into the editing, joins you for season two, what would you tell them about editing or the use of music or the use of the B-roll, for example? So I got married in the middle of this season and our friend Kelly came on like a total trooper to cover me for two weeks. And I think I was just like, oh, hop on in. And she's such a fantastic editor and made the episodes better in the two weeks she had them. But I think it's crazy the amount of access you have to all the B-roll and music and things like that. But in terms of hard and fast rules, the music-driven montages feel like kind of a style of the show, but there's not necessarily a rule to them. But I do feel like Chris would be like, well, here's an instance where we should go into a cooking music-driven montage. And I feel like those are in probably almost every episode. Yeah. Uh, not seven. I feel so much of this show in the same way, not to make the, like a very cliched comparison, but it's a lot like cooking in the sense that you have guidelines as far as things that you obviously can't do as far as don't burn something. But at the same time, so much of it is based on a feel and a gut instinct in the moment. And I feel like so much to this show is that in the best way where it's not necessarily like, oh, we did this because of this and this and this. It's much more, oh, we did this because that felt right at the moment or that felt interesting or that shot for whatever reason with this sound underneath it really drove home this emotion. And it's a hard thing to really codify and to put down. Someone said, here's the post Bible on the bear. I don't really know what would, <laughs> what what would, would go in it, truthfully. That's interesting. Well, I, I noticed one thing that I wanted to talk about. There's an intercutting of cooking stuff with stuff that's not even necessarily in the kitchen. I felt like sometimes we were out in Chicago or we were with Carmi outside of the restaurant and it would cut to stuff in the cooking pieces. Is that true? And did you feel like, you know what, we just need to keep the cooking alive or something? It's pilot probably more that whole, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, we don't cut a bunch to food. Like we leave the kitchen a couple of times, but in terms of montaging, that first opening montage is probably the craziest it gets in the season. And that's just introducing Chicago and Carmi and he's a cook and this, like there's so much going on at once. He was a baby at one point. Here's some photos. It's just a lot of information all at once. Right. Um, he has jeans in the oven. Now he's selling them for money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not fine. If you don't like this, turn it off. This show is crazy. But oh, I think one of my favorite cross-cutting moments in the season is in episode five, right before the power goes out. Hmm. So I feel like Adam did this great thing of cutting between Sydney and Sydney's in her badass mode, putting together this new dish. And then you have Richie and Carmi fighting. And then you have Marcus, whose things are spiraling out of control. And I felt like that was a great moment. Of, they're all in the same building, but they clearly are also focused on different things. Almost could be anywhere. 
And I feel like that just built to this moment of then everything shutting down and just showing that all these three people are not aware of how the other one is impacting what's about to happen. And that sequence in particular is just a testament to Chris and Josh and Joanna Callow, who directed all the episodes that I cut and is one of the showrunners and wrote a bunch of the episodes and just, yeah, amazing is like the way that that was written, the fact and Carmi and Richie discussion is if you play it as a very kind of slow and serious scene. And then Marcus flipping out is its own thing. And then the Sydney cooking footage isn't even from that episode. That was a cheat that basically after the fact, Josh is like, oh, let's get Sydney in there also. So you can see her kind of developing the stuff that eventually becomes her dish, which eventually becomes this. So it was have your kind of building blocks and then just start to layer them on top of each other and ramp it up, knowing that you're out is going to be the power hitting. Again, then you have a track. So it's sort of like the reverse scoring to get everything to that point where you know it's going to hit here, basically. Yeah, a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of 3D chess to get all that stuff to happen. I love it. One of the things that I loved a real subtle moment, I believe it's episode four, basically the restaurants eating their the food at, together as a family and the cake gets made and everybody's eating this cake and that episode ends on an exhale. I thought that just said so much about the character. It was almost like a cliffhanger or a reverse cliffhanger. We were like, I wonder what's going to happen in the next episode now that she's exhaled. Does that make sense? Definitely. The woman who plays Tina, Liza, is one of my favorite characters on the show. And I felt like that was the perfect time for her to have her like moment of coming to terms with Sydney because we were like, okay, we get her shtick. She doesn't want to do it. And like that episode from her, I just believe so much her performance that she's had this change of heart and seen Sydney with respect for the first time. The first four episodes, you see her holding in all this anger and she's so defensive and combative. So just to end with her exhausted eating this beautiful cake, her feet are probably killing her and she's finally come to terms with the current situation. I was just like, oh, that feels like a happy ending, even though she's probably not. I wouldn't call her happy in that moment, but there is something nice about, okay, progress is being made and these people are coming together. And I feel like one of the things we would talk about is like, what would you want to eat on the show? <laughs> and I think the chocolate cake is what I want. With that like orange vest. I'm oh, like, oh that's yeah, that's me too. I'm like, I wonder what that yeah. chocolate cake tastes like. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Made me hungry cutting it sometimes. I wanted to talk a little bit about that idea that you just brought up, Joanna, of the character arc. And just how much of it do you have to really construct? Obviously, the actor knows their arc and they know what they're trying to accomplish to get themselves to a new place. How much of that are you trying to really orchestrate as an editor? okay, she needs to be less angry here. She needs to be more angry here. She needs to be less defensive here. She needs to be more defensive here. I think that's one of my favorite parts about editing TV is just that you have these more or less, I guess, four hours to go on a journey with these characters. And all of these performances were so strong and the characters were so well-written that it was just so fun to track them over the course of the season. And I think my favorite arc to be invested in is Marcus. In the beginning, the very first episode, he's joking around with Richie. He starts to gain respect from Carmi to see where he goes at the end of the season where he has all this potential. He's self-taught but made mistakes, but wants to keep growing. I feel like it was really, at least in my episodes, I was really trying to be like, okay, let's track this from him setting the donuts in episode four to then episode seven. He thinks he's finally cracked it. There's a hilarious conversation about him being homeless. I think it's five or six that Adam yeah. had, which I love. But anyway, I feel like all the characters go on their arc and because there's such a great ensemble, it was like, oh, you know what? We haven't maybe checked in on Sydney making this dish. And that's why she was added to your montage in 105 and you just really want to see that these people aren't remaining stagnant and making sure that we're checking in with all of them enough so it's not just Carmi's story everybody is changing as a result of this new leadership coming in yeah from my end I think the answer on stuff like this is you see when you have great writing and great actors you kind of want to get out of the way of it a little bit <laughs> It's been really cool to see how with characters like Tina, for example, or Richie, people who have seen the first couple episodes are like, I hate Richie. I hate <laughs> Tina. Like why they should fire them immediately. Like they're the fucking worst. And you're like, sure, but keep watching. And then you see the response at the end is like, oh my God, Tina, I'd love her so much. And <laughs> the, like, the fact that that's written in such a strong way without 
deliberate handholding throughout. It just a natural evolution with great actors. I think when you're presented with something like that, it's my job to just let them cook for lack of a better term and kind of get out of the way of something that's good. And I just feel lucky that like, oh, I don't have to make something out of whole cloth that doesn't exist. This is on the page and this arc is there and this actor is just nailing it and let them do that. So yeah, at least for my end, it was less about how can I get her <laughs> to feel redeemed? It's like, no, she's an amazing actress working off a great script. And I just consider myself very lucky to be working on something with both those components. Yeah, we didn't really have to fake any of that. I, don't think. I, well, I wasn't looking for fake, but like I think of Tina, she tastes something in that episode five or something where she's like, oh my gosh, okay. I might have to give her her props, right? Those moments, seeing them, not letting them slip away. I think Joe Walker talks about putting them on a pillow. Like yeah. here, here you go. I've perfectly presented this, not in your face, but here is the right way to present this moment. You don't want to miss those things. Definitely. It's funny as far as if we're talking about Tina, there were a couple of moments where we had discussions about how many times are we seeing Tina take a bite of something and be like, oh my God, this brings back these <laughs> memories. Like, oh, that's amazing. And is it like a little too on the nose or a little too much? But then you're like, no, she's great. And especially her memories of Michael and the dishes that she had with Carmen's family before. I think it's having faith that when you're so in the weeds on making something, when you see it 30 times, it might come across as a little treacly or a little melodramatic. You have to try to remember if you're seeing this for the first time, what's the impact of that? And I think we then would default to have faith in the actor, have faith in the story and really let that kind of be what it is. Editing is a lot like cooking. It's a lot like being in a kitchen. <laughs> I, was say, I did like your analogy. You have the recipe, but you got to yeah. mix it up a little bit. Add some well, stuff. Well, I do think one of the reasons that the show has broke through, whatever that means nowadays, it's because I think, at least for myself, while I was watching the show and working on it, it did remind me of team filmmaking in the sense that you're only as good as every component of what you're getting. If you have a great writer, but the DP doesn't do a good job, then the final project's not going to be good. And you can apply that to like literally every aspect of the production and post. And I think, like I said, one of the reasons that it's done well is I think a lot of people, even if they've never worked in a kitchen, can see those similar values of struggle and helping each other and being honest about your emotions and how greatness can really only come from people kind of coming together and working towards a goal and strengthening each other. And yeah, that's the thing that I've taken away the most from it, just seeing the team filmmaking parallels of it. And I think that helps it resonate, truthfully. Yeah, love it. Well, I asked the Art of the Cut listeners, who do you want to hear from? And there were multiple The Bears. So that's oh. why you guys are on, because people are responding to the show and are really interested in finding out how the sausage is made. <laughs> there you go. The beef sandwich is made. <laughs> it was wonderful to talk to both of you, Joanna, Adam. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun to relive the post-process. That's it for Art of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, the new online home of Art of the Cup, where there's tons of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to our guests, Joanna Nagel and Adam Epstein. Thanks to Jake Gum for editing today's podcast, and to our partner, Boris Effects, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check out their offer at jumpdesktop.com cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening, and please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that we've moved and that they should subscribe right here for more great Art of the Cut interviews every week.